from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Have you ever been to Singapore, China, Japan maybe? When you land in Singapore, the first thing you'll notice is the ultra-modern, clean, beautiful, highly functional airport with technology and thoughtfulness that result in an efficient, pleasant transportation system. The handling of luggage, the comfort and impressiveness of it all. Have you landed at Kennedy Airport in New York? O'Hare in Chicago or L.A.? Have you taken an Amtrak recently? Have you driven the roads in our major metropolitan areas? Are you one of those 160,000 cars that crossed the Hackensack River on Route 4 in New Jersey on a bridge that was built in 1931? We're supposedly the richest country in the world. So why are we so in need of repair? We have a constant tug of war between the obvious need to invest in our future and the method by which we pay for it. Most politicians argue about paying for government investments, old style, through taxes. Or for that matter, they talk about deficits creating government's need to take on debt, resulting in more taxes. But in fact, the federal government is a monetary issuer. We think about that as like printing money. So why is it that the manufacturer of money wants all of us to pay more tax when they fund stimulus or infrastructure investments? Did you know that the whole system of raising taxes to pay for government deficit spending is really all about managing inflation? Today, there are some highly respected economists who have an updated, some call radical, system in mind that's sweeping the economic journals. It's called Modern Monetary Theory. So, it seems like it's worth a listen, don't you think? By the way, did you know that American currency left the gold standard back in 1971? It was controversial back then. Many called it radical thinking. But here we are, better off as a result. So perhaps now, 50 years later, we need to update our thinking again. This is politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And once again, my co-host is Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who's dealt with international trade and economic relations between many countries. She's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Welcome, Jane. Nice to see you. Always good to be here. And welcome, Stephanie. Oh, thank you both for having me. Our special guest, Stephanie Kelton. You've heard the expression, they wrote the book on it? Well, Politico and Bloomberg called Stephanie one of the 50 most influential thinkers of our time. Barron's named her one of the most influential women in finance in 2020. And Prospect Magazine listed her among the world's top 50 thinkers. Now, she's here with her new book, New York Times bestseller, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Stephanie has written for Bloomberg, The Financial Times, New York Times, LA Times, U.S. News and World Report. She's been seen on CNN and many others. She served as chief economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee in 2015, and she's advised Bernie Sanders in both of his presidential campaigns and She's a senior fellow at the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. Welcome, Stephanie. So nice to have you here. It's great to be with you. So let's just get down to it. You've said that the federal government can never run out of money. How is that possible? Well, because as you said in your opening, the federal government, the United States of America, is a currency issuer. In fact, it has the sole legal authority to issue our currency, the U.S. dollar. 
This is a right given unto the federal government by our founders. It is in the Constitution. It's in Article 1, Section 8. So you and I can't create the U.S. dollar. I mean, we could try, right? We could set up a nice piece of machinery and we could attempt to create the U.S. dollar. I think there's jail time involved in that one, but... Yeah, we're going to end up in an orange jumpsuit if we attempt to create the U.S. currency. This is a right that is granted exclusively to the federal government of the United States of America. So Stephanie, I want to just get into what I think is the main myth that you talk about in your book, where you start right off by saying the federal budget isn't like a household budget. What do you mean by that? I have to live within my financial means. If I want to spend money on something, I've got to come up with the funds. I've got to earn or borrow the money in order to be able to make a purchase or a payment. The federal government is different. I'm a currency user. I've got to find the money before I can spend. The federal government is a currency issuer. The federal government can, in effect, spend money it does not have. Congress has the power of the purse, which means Congress can commit to spending. And we've just seen this in recent months and over the course of the last year or so. Congress can commit to spending trillions of dollars. It didn't go out and raise taxes to pass a $2.2 trillion spending package known as the CARES Act in March of last year. It didn't go out and borrow from China or raise taxes to do $900 billion in December. And it didn't raise taxes to do the $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package that passed just last month. Congress can commit to spending money it does not have because it has something the rest of us don't, the legal authority to issue the currency. So if Congress commits to the spending, their bank, the Federal Reserve, their job is to carry out payments that are authorized by Congress on behalf of the Federal Reserve. So when Congress commits to that spending, the Federal Reserve carries out those payments by marking up the appropriate bank accounts. And what you end up with are newly created digital dollars. You end up with bank reserves created out of the keyboard from the Federal Reserve, and then a series of entries that are made as the rest of our accounts are credited when that $1,400 payment goes out or your $300 a week extra unemployment payment goes out. Those are newly created dollars. So Stephanie, why is there all this talk about raising taxes in order to fund federal spending? Because the administration has decided that after more than a year of passing clean, what we call in the Beltway speak, a clean spending bill, which is Congress writing a bill like the CARES Act, which sends just one set of instructions to the Fed. That CARES Act was basically Congress ordering up $2.2 trillion. Get ready. You're going to carry out these payments. And the Fed carried out the payments. A clean bill sends one set of instructions to the Fed. Now, the Biden administration has decided that they want to do things differently. They want to, quote unquote, pay for their spending. All that means is that they want to spend money into the economy without increasing the deficit. So what do they tell us they want to do? They want to increase taxes to offset 
the spending that the Biden administration is proposing to do on infrastructure and so forth. Seems reasonable. Okay, you may think so. That sends two sets of instructions to the Federal Reserve. One set of instructions says, go out and pay these contract workers and engineers and architects and these construction companies and people who are manufacturing solar panels and EV charging stations we're going to purchase. Go make those payments and then make a second set of entries to the ledger where you go out and debit the accounts of some corporations, multinationals, very wealthy people. So we're crediting the bank accounts of certain people as we spend, but we're instructing the Fed to debit, mark down the size of the bank accounts of wealthy people and corporations. This is what the administration would like to do. Stephanie, you're right. And I understand what you're saying, that Congress can just order the Fed to create digital money. But anytime the government creates money, they pay interest on those reserves that they're creating, are they not? Sure. Okay. Federal Reserve can choose. Well, right now they're paying essentially zero, right? Right. But technically they pay interest. They just can't print money and there's no consequence. That's how the Fed pays the interest. They just credit the reserve account of the bank. When you say that the second instruction goes to the Fed to debit corporate accounts and things like that, they don't debit it directly. The corporations pay their taxes. Of course. For people who don't understand how it works, I just want to make it clear. Right. No, that's a fine point to make. So the the point is that the corporation has an account, a bank account at a commercial bank. And as the corporation pays the higher tax, they get a debit to their account and then their bank gets a debit to the account they have at the Federal Reserve. So accounts are being debited. So this is all accounting theory, though, Stephanie, where it would seem that there's a purpose for it other than that the government actually has to raise the money in order to spend. It sounds like you don't feel the government needs to raise the money. They can keep the presses rolling and print more money, create more money. We seem to be running against a brick wall. Why is it that the government doesn't have to raise the money just because they can print it? There must be a reason. And that's inflation, isn't it? It's politics at the root. It is politics. So again, I'm not making a proposal that the government print money to pay for anything. What I'm doing is providing you with a description, an accurate description of the mechanics of government finance. This is simply how it works. So every single time the government makes a payment, it gives rise to newly created money. There's no other way for it to work. So what we're talking about now with the Biden administration saying, I want to offset the spending so that it doesn't add to the deficit. All of the previous spending packages that we've passed over the course of the last year added to the deficit. Okay, they weren't offset. So the spending added to the deficit. Biden is saying, I want to try to do it differently this time. So when when we talk about this, I think it's really important to center the politics. Why does the Biden administration want to do it differently? If they could just pass another bill through reconciliation, commit the spending and forget about all the tax increases, which you have to fight for, maybe the votes aren't there, it's much messier. Why not just do another bill the way we did all the rest of the bills and commit the spending and spend the money? And the answer, I think, is that there is reluctance on the part of many lawmakers to do another multi-trillion dollar spending package that isn't quote unquote paid for, that adds to the deficit. So it's this concern that some lawmakers have about committing trillions of dollars to do infrastructure the way that we did the COVID relief, because it will continue to add to the deficit, increase the debt. So there's this belief that it would be more responsible to pay for the spending, to raise taxes, 
offset the spending so as to make the spending deficit neutral. What are the ramifications? Let's say that it did not do that and we didn't tax in order to offset deficits. Then you'd have, as far as I grew up learning, you'd have massive debt, you'd have massive deficits, you'd have to pay a lot of people a lot of interest, future generations would have to pay for the debt. It does seem irresponsible on the face of it, right? Otherwise, you're just printing a lot of money that doesn't exist and that's a problem too. You're just spending money into existence. So I think for me, the question is, look, can the economy safely absorb another trillion or two trillion or three trillion or four trillion dollars of spending? And the Biden administration is talking about rolling this out over the course of eight years. So it's not actually a whole lot of money when you think about 200, 250 billion a year, depending on how they stretch it out. So it's not an enormous uh, infusion of spending into the economy. But look, the relevant constraint is inflation. And you mentioned it earlier when you, you, you said something about inflation. The government could do COVID relief without offsets because the economy was so depressed, because there was so much idle capacity in the economy that it was safe for Congress to put money in our hands that we could turn around and spend into the economy. Businesses are clamoring for customers. They could produce more output to meet that higher demand. And we didn't get inflationary pressures. So the question is, for me, you know, how much more low-hanging fruit is available? How much fiscal space is there left in the economy today that the government could safely spend dollars into our hands and we could turn around and chase goods and services without creating an inflation problem? Why is there such a problem? Why is there such a fear of inflation? Maybe you could help define that for us. We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being You're questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones beauty that are of worth. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life, and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com/slash a moment of your time. Why is there so much fear about inflation? People don't generally like inflation. Well, they don't like taxes either. Well, inflation is, in a sense, right, a reduction in your purchasing power. In a, in a sense, just as if I taxed a dollar away from you, if prices are rising faster than your income, then your real purchasing power is declining. Okay, that makes sense. And so your paycheck doesn't go as far if your wages aren't rising to keep up with any rising prices. So if housing and education and food and clothing and entertainment, if everything's getting more expensive at the same time, you're going to feel the pinch because your paycheck isn't going to go as far each month. So people don't like 
you know, to see inflation run very high, let's say. But you mentioned 2%. So the Federal Reserve has for years targeted a 2% inflation rate, not just the Fed, but the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, everybody targets 2%. How many central banks have achieved their own 2% inflation target over the course of the last 10, 15 years? The answer is not very many. We haven't here in the US, the Bank of Japan can't do it, the ECB can't do it. You, you know, we have this idea somehow that central banks have a dial and that they can dial inflation up and dial inflation down and that they do this by making adjustments, small adjustments to an interest rate that they control. And that if they just nudge the interest rate up and down, this gives them great power over generalized prices, right? What's happening to inflation. And the evidence just is not there for that. The central banks could not hit their own 2% inflation target, decades of trying. There is this belief, though, that if inflation ever did pick up, that it's okay. We don't have to worry too much because the central bank will push it right back down to 2%. That's what Jerome Powell kind of has markets believing, that we're prepared for this. If inflation were to break out, we've got the tools, we can handle it. What what is the main factor in inflation though? Can I ask you just to explain that cuz is it really the thought that if you put a few trillion dollars into the economy that the price of an orange and an apple are going to go up or is there something uh bigger that kind of lends itself to that calculation? Oh, there's definitely something bigger. So, you know, at the margin, if you increase spending by a dollar, you're not going to see inflationary pressure. So it becomes a question of what is the government spending money on? There are things government can spend more money on that actually help mitigate inflationary pressures. Building and maintaining our productive capacity mitigates inflationary pressures. If we had allowed half of all businesses to go under because of COVID, the airlines to go under, if we'd allowed the hospitality and leisure, hotel chains and restaurants, if if we had allowed that to happen, and then we beat the virus and we try to go back to life as normal, but the airlines are significantly reduced, you can't, you know, we would be seeing incredible pressure on inflation for, you know, hotel rooms and, and flights and all the rest of it. We didn't do that. We maintained capacity. And what the Biden administration is talking about doing is actually building out capacity with investments in infrastructure, R&D, education, all of those things make our bucket bigger, in a sense, so that the government can safely spend more and the rest of us can too, because our economy will be more productive. We will have a bigger bathtub to hold all of that additional money and, and purchasing power. Stephanie, one of the things you said, the limits that Congress can make or should make in spending, my understanding is that after working on it for a long time, economists don't entirely agree on what causes inflation. So how could the Congressional Budget Office predict with any degree of certainty that if you do this, we're going to have this degree of inflation or we won't have that degree of inflation when even the Fed hasn't gotten it right, as you just pointed out? And it's not so easy. Well, I don't think the Fed has failed, in a sense, to predict inflation. What they've failed to do is achieve higher inflation. You're right, though. I, I will completely agree with you that inflation is very tricky. It is a dynamic phenomenon. It is complex. There is no one that you could have on your program who could write down for you a model 
that will work to explain and help anticipate inflationary pressures here in the US or around the world. They don't exist. In the old days, you know, we had Milton Friedman, the Chicago School economist. And when I was being trained as an undergraduate and then going into graduate school, we were taught the quantity theory of money. We were taught that if you increase the rate of growth of the money supply, you get a proportionate increase in the price level. In other words, as Friedman said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Create too much money, increase the rate of growth of the money supply, three, four, five percent, you get three, four, five percent inflation. It follows in tandem. After the financial crisis, when central banks started doing quantitative easing, these massive bond buying programs, many economists, many famous economists kind of freaked out when Bernanke started up the quantitative easing program here. And they wrote open letters and they said, please don't do this. You're going to debase the currency. This risks not just inflation, but hyperinflation. Because in their minds and the way they were trained as economists, they were taught that if you print money, you get inflation and that will inevitably happen. And of course, it didn't happen. And Japan's been running QE for two decades and we ran it here for a decade and we're still have bond buying programs and we didn't get inflation above 2%. So then economists say, well, we have this other model that was supposed to help us understand inflation. And that was the Phillips curve. And the argument there was that, you know, there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. If you allow unemployment to fall too low, inflationary pressures pick up. And so the Federal Reserve operated with this sort of belief that there is some natural rate of unemployment. You have to trap a certain number of your fellow citizens in unemployment. They just have to be unemployed because if you allow too many people to find jobs, the labor market gets too tight. Workers get too much bargaining power. They negotiate higher wages. Businesses pass those higher wages on in the form of higher prices and inflation picks up. Well, the Phillips curve fell apart. Almost no economists believe in this inevitable trade-off between inflation and unemployment. We push the unemployment rate down to 3.6, 3.7%, and inflation never picked up. So we threw that out. So now where I'm going to give you the last one. And this is when you know the discipline is really in trouble. When an economist tells you that the way to hold inflation down and contain inflation is that you simply need an independent, credible, independent central bank and well-anchored inflation expectations. Inflation expectations is our hand wave. It is our way of saying, we do not know. So we mutter this thing about well-anchored inflation expectations. Sounds very smart. And you could sort of convince people that, well, all we need to do is make sure that we are perceived as serious and having a good handle on things. And as long as people believe that the Fed has the power to dampen any unwanted inflationary pressures, they will formulate expectations in line with that and inflation will remain low and close to 2%. This is our hand wave, is what I'm telling you. Inflation is a complex, dynamic process. It seems like all of our spending versus collection of taxes at the end of the day is designed to try to have the amount of money in the economy that won't drive up prices. I would say that's that's pretty much it, except you're missing one thing. I would say full employment and price stability or relative price stability, low and stable inflation. So a full employment economy, what you try to achieve is a balanced economy. 
You want high levels of employment where everybody who wants to work has a job and low levels of inflation. That's what you're trying to balance. If it takes an unbalanced budget to produce a balanced economy, then I want to call the budget outcome a balanced outcome because it's doing its job, right? It's delivering a full employment economy with low stable inflation. If it takes a deficit of 4% of GDP to achieve that, then we ought to be perfectly fine with that. You know what? Let's dig into that in 30 seconds. When we come back from this, I want you to talk about your federal job guarantee. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Stephanie, I, I wanted to talk about how MMT kind of provides for something called the federal job guarantee. What is it and why is it? Okay, so the federal job guarantee is a very, very old idea. This is something that Hyman Minsky put forward in the 1960s, I think in the early 1960s. So Minsky was an economist, right? A famous one, became a famous one. And Minsky was a student of someone who wrote about mostly finance and banking. And so one day Minsky thought, you know, there's something weird about the fact that we created the Federal Reserve in order to act as a lender of last resort. When the financial system seizes up and credit markets go haywire, we used to have bank panics and runs and everything would fall apart. So we created the Fed. The Fed is there so that we have an elastic currency, so that the Federal Reserve can always maintain sufficient liquidity in the financial system. Minsky thought, it's very strange that we never bothered to create an analogous institution to maintain liquidity in the labor market. So Minsky proposed an employer of last resort. We call it a federal job guarantee. He called it employer of last resort. And what Minsky had in mind and what we have in mind is that you want to create a perfectly elastic demand for labor, which means in economic speak that you set the price of labor and you let the quantity float. In other words, the demand curve is horizontal, perfectly elastic. The government says anyone who wants a job and can't find work anywhere else in the economy can have a job provided to you at a base wage. We say $15 an hour. You can include benefits. So it's a wage and benefit package. And you take everybody who comes through the door. Why is this a good thing? Well, lots of reasons. Minsky stressed the automatic stabilizer feature that instead of when the economy becomes weak and goes into recession, which is inevitable, we're going to have booms and busts. When the economy slows down and businesses start losing customers, losing revenue, profits fall off, they shed workers, they let people go. Instead of allowing all those people that lose jobs in a downturn, instead of allowing them to become unemployed, many of them stay unemployed for a long period of time. So they experience long duration of unemployment, labor scarring, they become unemployable, businesses don't want to hire the unemployed. So Minsky said, we could absorb them right away. We could re-employ them. We could even upgrade skills. We could have apprenticeships and training. But at the very least, we maintain 
the worker, right? We keep them employable so that when the economy recovers and the private sector is ready to begin hiring again, they can reach into this liquid pool, right? And hire away an employed person at a small premium over what they're being paid here. Stephanie, it sounds amazing. Couple of issues. One, I can't help but say, if we look at the history of our government managing such situations, managing people, training them, look at the post office, for goodness sakes, paying five times over for its office space when it has a a site for a post office. They don't manage things terribly well. How do you propose that a program like this is handled management-wise by this government that doesn't have a great history of doing that? The good news is that the federal government is not responsible for managing this program. The federal government is responsible for funding the jobs. The reason is that only the currency issuer is in a position to spend more when the economy is turning down, even as tax revenues are going down, right? So we say that the funding has to come from the federal government, but this program needs to be as much as possible. uh, What is the word I want? Managed from the private sector somehow? Managed works fine. Yeah, it's decentralized so that it is the communities, it is local governments, it is the communities that are responsible, bear the primary responsibility for you know oversight and maintaining programs and so forth. Yes, the federal government will establish broad parameters. We imagine that out of the Department of Labor, the program would be officially housed in the Department of Labor. So you would have to say these jobs are the kinds of jobs that will qualify. You can't just say that you'll do anything, right, and have a job in this program. But broadly speaking, we imagine that the jobs would be oriented around building a care economy. So people are caring for the community, caring for others, caring for the planet. So care work broadly defined, but you have the not-for-profits involved, you have city and local municipal governments. Going to what you said before, Stephanie, where we are concerned with inflation, why is it this wouldn't create job inflation? Because I'm now getting $15 an hour by working for my local government. So if I want to work for you in the private sector, I want $20 an hour. And why doesn't that cause job inflation and therefore overall inflation in the economy? Yeah, lots of reasons why. So this is actually our price stabilizer. And that's how Minsky imagined it too. This is a better price anchor than what we have today. What we have today, remember, when a business wants to start hiring again, as the economy picks up, they try to reach around the unemployed. They don't want to hire the unemployed. So they try to pick workers off from their competitors. Those people are making a higher wage. They're higher paid. Now you have to bid them away from their current employment to get them to come work for you. So there's a higher inflationary bias there. But there's also all of the vast expenses that are involved in maintaining an economy with 15, 20 million people unemployed who want to be working. The costs are, you know, in a sense, immeasurable, although some economists have tried to to put numbers to this. So imagine high levels of unemployment. What happens? Worse health outcomes, worse educational attainment. So more high school dropouts, fewer people go to college, fewer people with higher earning jobs, lifetime earnings are lower. Makes a whole lot more sense than giving people money for doing nothing, certainly. Yeah, I mean, prisons, healthcare costs, all you add up the avoided costs 
of maintaining a full employment economy? And I think the answer is there. Besides that, we do pay uh, unemployment compensation. So we're already paying probably vastly more to maintain high levels of unemployment versus moving to a true fully employed economy. Did I understand correctly, though, that I'll call it the Federal Job Reserve Program, Federal Job Guarantee Program, whatever you call it, the jobs wouldn't actually be with the federal government? They would just be financed by the federal government? So it depends who you ask. We have always, in the MMT kind of academic community, we have always said federally funded, but they were not hired by the federal government. In other words, you're not swelling the number of actual employees of the federal government by 15 or 20 million. I think that's going to be much more complex to manage than just making them direct employees of the federal government when you're dealing with multiple potential employers and oversight and everything like that. Well, employers already have employees. So if you have a Meals on Wheels that says we could use two additional hands or Habitat for Humanity or something like that, you train people, they're already managing a crew. So they may staff up a bit more in terms of supervision and management, depending upon how many additional uh, people they are responsible for. But you've already got a management layer in place. What happens when the economy heats up again and they don't need those jobs? So all of a sudden, all these organizations that had those employees, the federal government pulls the money away and they no longer have that? Well, look, this is a very good question. And you know, a program like this would reveal a lot about what it is, the the deficiencies in a variety of care work in our economy. You start putting people in elder care facilities where you might have a loved one who nobody says three words to all day long. And now all of a sudden you have a federal job guarantee worker there who plays checkers, maybe reads, um, sings songs, talks to someone, and then they disappear. And now there's that loneliness you bet there's going to be pressure on local government, on the federal government, make these jobs permanent. Once it becomes clear that these are valued jobs in the community that the community doesn't want to see let go. Let's just make the assumption for a minute that this can work because there's always a way to to blow up something like this by saying that the people won't pay attention to their jobs or whatever. Let's just say that this can work. What I'd like to know, Stephanie, is who do you want to put in charge of our economy? Right now, we've got a board of governors, we've got financial expertise, economic experts in a federal reserve system that are maintaining our economy. I get the feeling that you're okay with the idea that politicians actually get to run the spending of our government and how our economy is handled. And that scares me to death. Is that how you look at it? That's the way it's been since the founding. That's what the founders envisioned. That's why they gave Congress the power of the purse. That's why we have an elected Congress that represents the people. Well, actually, they have the power of the purse for spending. They don't have the power of the purse for monetary policy. Okay, but you you asked about putting people in charge of spending into the economy and running programs and so forth. So that is what we have is a democracy and elected representatives whose job it ought to be to represent the interests of the populace who put them there. We get to take them out if we don't like the job that they're doing. The Federal Reserve is obviously different. The Board of Governors that you mentioned, 
is not an elected body. They are nominated by the president. Well, we hope they have expertise. We do hope that they have expertise. Sure. So they're nominated by the president and Senate confirmed. So there is a layer of congressional oversight in the confirmation process. And by the way, there were people who were nominated under the last administration who didn't have the votes to actually get on the board of governors. So that oversight turns out is important. Yeah, we we have the democratic system that we have. Congress is given the power to tax. Congress has the power to spend. Congress can make good decisions with the public purse. They can make rotten decisions. We can hold them accountable. But I'm not giving them any powers that they don't already possess. One last question for you, Stephanie. If this is a viable solution, why isn't Russia an incredibly wealthy, successful nation? They could write as many checks as they want. Writing checks doesn't make a good economy. Deficits don't make a good economy. Every deficit is good for someone. On the other side of the government's deficit lies a financial surplus. The question, though, is for whom and for what? All deficits aren't created equal. Every dollar or ruble created doesn't have an equivalent impact in the economy. Policy matters. What does make a good economy? Well, we've been talking about a balanced economy. And so, you know, I like the idea of mission-oriented budgeting. I talk about this in the last chapter of the book. I would like to see the government, instead of, you know, deciding I'm going to spend this many dollars and see how much good I can do to reduce poverty and green the economy and provide uh, help for people who want to go to college and all the other things, Mm -hmm. figure out what the end goals are and then fit the budget to achieve the mission. What is it we're trying to accomplish? And this is basically what JFK did with the moonshot. It was establish the goal and then commit the resources necessary to achieve the goal. So a good economy for me is one where you don't have 100 million people who are under or uninsured when it comes to health insurance. You don't have 40 million people living in poverty. You don't have 500,000 people going bankrupt every year because of medical debt. You don't have 500,000 people sleeping out on the streets. So now what you have is a president who's putting out bits and pieces of the plan Everybody is polling it. We're getting some feedback from the electorate in terms of, you know, how how supportive are they of these broad goals that President Biden is laying out. And the polls that I've seen, I look at a lot of polls, they're overwhelmingly positive. You got 60 some percent of the population who says I can get behind this. And then when they put the tax piece in, it becomes even more popular because he's kind of saying, and and guess what? We're not going to ask you to pay more. So people say, oh, I like it even more. But as Bill said, I think that makes it a higher hurdle in terms of getting the votes. You're zeroing in right on the issue, which is that in order to get the spending to do these things, you need 535 members of Congress. The population as a whole is already bought in. And the members of Congress are going to vote according to what's going to get them their vault full of money for their next campaign. And clearly, the companies that support them don't want higher taxes. So it makes it more difficult to fund. You betcha. Stephanie, I hope that what you're describing is possible. I can tell you that I got to four of my 60 questions. So I certainly hope that you will come back and join us. It sounds so promising and so exciting. And we can't help but hope that it can work. And of course, we can't help that people listen to it with an open mind. Because as we said in the beginning of the program, there are so many places where we need to invest in this country and in our people that it would be nice if we have that ability without finding reasons to vote against it. 
Stephanie Kelton, how can people follow you? I guess I'm on Twitter, so at Stephanie Kelton. Deficit Myth, your book is available, I assume, at Amazon? Any good bookstore, Amazon, you bet. And I believe you have a website too, don't you? I do. I have a website, which is just stephaniekelton.com. It's got information about some upcoming appearances and some reading materials and that sort of thing. Thank you. Well, being that this is Meet Me in the Middle, promise us you'll come back. We may have a, an economist on the other side of the question. We can have a great big argument and a fun program. Will you come back and join us? Oh, we'll try to make that happen. Thank you. That would be fun. Yeah. Okay. And to you listening, don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around for the next Meet Me in the Middle. Thank you to Jane Albrecht. I appreciate you joining us. And thank you to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Hey, everybody. These are interesting subjects, interesting concepts, and you have to listen with an open mind to both sides because we can't ignore the possibilities. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you next week. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.